Well, good afternoon. It's lovely to be here. See, we're such a large company. Um, it's not quite the countless multitude on high, but it's a good number, and we're glad to see everyone who's been able to come today. We trust that God will bless our time over the next two days, and that it will be a conference that will be remembered uh, for all the right reasons, and that it will make a difference in our lives. Now, I'd like to turn, please, uh, to Romans chapter 12. We're dealing with this uh, passage, this section of the book of Romans, Romans 12 to 16, over the next two days. So if you could turn, please, to Romans chapter 12. Uh, it's a joy to be here and to share with our dear brother Craig, and we trust this will be a blessing to all who are present. Now, the letter to the Romans uh, is a very logical letter, and it's one that we readily understand its layout, because it's a linear sort of progression. Paul, as he writes, he progresses from one subject logically to the next subject to the next subject. And so, you will know this, I'm sure, but uh, chapters 1 to 5, it's doctrinal. The great subject is justification, salvation. And the first section is doctrinal. And then the next section, chapter 8, 9, uh, chapters, sorry, chapter 6, 7 and 8, these chapters are moral. And then we come to a dispensational section, 9, 10 and 11. And so we've gone through doctrine and morality and dispensational truth and then we come to this section that we're dealing with over the conference a uh, couple of days. And this is the great practical section. This is where uh, the rubber hits the road as it were. This is where all the truth of this great epistle is now translated into practice. And so the theme for this conference is living out the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we, we must remember and we do I'm sure that the whole purpose of doctrine, the whole purpose of these great truths that fill the letter to the Romans is that our lives will express them for the glory of God. And that's what we're dealing with in these uh, chapters 12 through to 16. It's living out the great truths of the gospel. Now my passage today is Romans 12, 1 to 8. So let's read these verses. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, for every one that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, 
Well, the prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. Or he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Amen. A young Christian woman was invited uh, to spend some time with friends, to stay with them for a few days. And she knew that her host and hostess were not believers. And she knew that other people who'd been invited were not believers. And she was aware that some uh, people who would be there were, had professed salvation but had slipped back into the world. And before she knocked on the door, she prayed, Lord, give me every soul in this house. And she was a remarkable young woman. There was just something about her that invited questions. And so it wasn't long before the people in the house were asking her questions. And she was telling them about the Lord Jesus. And by the end of that evening, every unconverted person in that home had professed salvation. And every believer had been restored. And the young woman went to her room and of course she couldn't sleep. She was so thrilled with what had happened. She was so in awe of the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God. And throughout the whole night she sat up praising God and giving thanks for what had happened. And then as the dawn began to break, she took up her pen and she started to write. And it just seemed to flow from her. And she wrote, Take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee, take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. You know how it goes on. Take my intellect, take my silver, take my gold, take everything, take my voice, take my lips. She'd been reading this very passage that we're looking at this afternoon. She'd been reading Romans chapter 12. And Francis Ridley Havergal, as she wrote this wonderful hymn, it's a hymn all about consecration. Take my life and let it be consecrated. She was overwhelmed with the, the, the wonder, the grace, the, the, the goodness of God. And as a result, she felt this irrepressible urge to hand herself over to God. Our subject today is consecration. We're going to think of this section and first of all, in verse 1, we're going to think about the, the act of consecration. Because this is a deliberate, definite act. And then, I suppose you could say the rest of the whole section, never mind the rest of our reading, but the rest of the whole section of this part of the, the letter to the Romans, it's what flows from a life that has been consecrated, a life that has been surrendered to God. These practical things we're going to think about over the next two days, it really all flows. This is the kind of life Paul is teasing out, the kind of living 
that is consecrated, surrendered living. And this is where we begin, brothers and sisters. This is the foundation for all the practical exhortations of these chapters. It all stems from the fact that somebody has presented themselves, has consecrated themselves, has offered themselves over to God, and everything else flows from it. Now I approach this passage, and I have to confess to you, yes, I've looked at the, I've looked at the Greek lexicon, I've looked at the meaning of the Greek words, I've tried, I've tried again to get my head around the aorist tense, and things like that. I've, I've worked out some kind of, uh, of summary in my mind, and tried to split up the passage, but brothers and sisters, I approach this passage with shame. Because I recognize that I don't live up to this kind of life. And I don't know what it will do for you. But studying this passage has been a challenge to me. And I trust it will be a blessing to each one of us. And that each one of us will perhaps seek out some quiet place. And pray like Francis Ridley Havergill. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. In the passage we're going to think then about the act of consecration. And we're going to think about the outcome, the issues of consecration. And there are four things, uh, after we get through the act in verse 1, there are four things I want to focus on. Brother Craig will continue, I'm sure, in this practical theme in this passage, the rest of the chapter. But in this section... I want to say that a, a, a consecrated life results in a transformed mind. In verse 2. And then it results in sober self-assessment. In verse 3. In verses 4 and 5 it results in harmonious function in the body. And then in verse 6 to 8... It results in dedicated service. So we're going to think about that, brothers and sisters. I trust it will be profitable. We're going to think about the act of consecration. We're going to think of what it really means, how it occurs, what, it's invo- what it involves. And then we're going to think of what flows from it. A, a, a mind that's been transformed, sober self-assessment, harmonious function as a member of the body, and dedicated service for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the act then, the act of consecration. I beseech you, Paul says, I beseech you. He doesn't say I command you, because we're going to talk about an offering here. We're going to look at an offering, a sacrifice, and you will know that in the Old Testament there were compulsory sacrifices, and then there were what we call free will sacrifices, and the free will sacrifices were sweet savour. There was something really special about them, because they sprang from the free will of the offerer. And Paul wants this to be a free will offering. And so he uses this word, I beseech you. What he's really saying, it's a very, very strong word. It really means, I beg you. Paul is begging the believers to do something. In fact, it's the same word in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is talking about himself as an ambassador for Christ. And he says, as though God did beseech through us. In other words, Paul is saying, I am just as earnest about the consecration of saints as I am about the conversion of sinners. 
When Paul preached the gospel, he preached for results. He preached for decisions. He preached for lives to be changed. When Paul ministered the word of God, he had the same earnest desire. Brothers and sisters, we've become great sermon tasters and conference dissectors and uh, we'll have our opinions at the end about, about the preaching and about the preachers. Brothers and sisters, let's remember this. Paul was as much in earnest about seeing the saints take this step of consecration. He's begging them to do it. And he says, I'm begging you by the mercies of God. In other words, he's, he's saying, here is the great, re here's the compelling reason. Here, here is the great lever that's going to move the saints. It's the mercies of God. The mercies of God. Now, the commentators have a field day here. Because some of them say, well, this refers back, of course, to our first section of the book, uh, the letter of Romans. This doctrinal section, Paul ends in chapter 5, and he, he's talking about the love of God, and, and, and God's grace, and, and uh, God commends his love toward us. And some commentators say, that's what he's referring to. The mercies of God and salvation. Well, I'll tell you this, if we're not moved by the mercies of God and salvation, there's something wrong. Brothers and sisters, isn't it wonderful to be saved? Maybe there's somebody here and you're not saved. It's the most wonderful thing you could possibly experience. To know your sins are forgiven. To know that heaven's your home and, and God is your Father. And Christ is your Savior and Lord. There is nothing like it. It would be a strange thing if we weren't moved by the mercies of God and salvation. But then some say, no, no, that doesn't refer to this at all. It refers to the end of chapter 8, the section about, uh, about the great moral issues. And you remember chapter 8, I'm sure we've got it off by heart. Chapter 8, one of the most sublime chapters in the Bible. And it ends with the great mercy of God, the great grace of God being shown to believers. And Paul bursts into this doxology at the end of chapter 8. Who can separate us from the love of God, he says. And, and you know the passage probably quite well. And some say, that's what he's referring to. These are the mercies of God. Others say, no, no, it's not that at all. It's just the preceding chapter. It's chapter 11. Because in chapter 11, Paul says, God has concluded both the Jew and the Gentile uh, under unbelief that he might have mercy on all. And they say, it's God's great dispensational dealings with the Jew and the Gentile. These are the mercies of God. Well, I like these multiple questions that have the option at the bottom. All of the above. All of the above. Brothers and sisters, that's what I'm ticking today. That's my choice. All of the above. All of the above. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what kind of year 2022 has been. I know for some saints it's been a very hard year. A very difficult year. There's been heartache, there's been sorrow. But let's renew at the beginning of a new year our appreciation of the tender mercies of God, the compassions of God. Um, J.B. Phillips, in his, in his paraphrase, he says this, with our eyes wide open to the mercies of God. He, he says we're going to step into this verse with our eyes wide open. Brother, Sister, have you got your eyes wide open to the mercies of God? Have you got His compassions on you every morning? It's of the Lord's mercy that we're not consumed. We are the objects 
We are the evidence of the tender mercies of God. And so Paul, he's, he's begging them to do this. And he's begging them because of God's great love and compassion towards them. And now we must get to the point. What's he begging them to do? That's the whole point of the passage. What is it he wants them to do? What is he so earnest about? What does he think that bringing in all this about the mercy and compassion of God, what's it going to achieve? Well, it is simply this, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, somebody might pull me aside in the interval and say, look, consecration is not really in this passage at all. They might say to me, consecration is an Old Testament, an Old Testament truth. You get the consecration of the priests. And literally it means, the word consecration means to fill your hands. And they might say, well, it's got nothing to do with this. And somebody might even say, well, Francis Ridley Havergal got it wrong. You know, it's not me offering to God, it's God offering to me, it's God filling my hands. That's what it really means. It was from the priest. But you see, brothers and sisters, implicit in that filling of the hands is that Aaron and his sons, the priests, were brought before the Lord, and they stood before the Lord with their empty hands open, and they were really presenting themselves for service. And God filled their hands. And the important thing is this, and I believe it's like this, that what happens is that a believer presents themselves to God, God fills their hands, gives them something to give back to him, and then they give it back to him. <laughs> that's, that's how it works. That's, how, that's what David said. Remember David when he made his great contribution for the temple? He says, we're just giving back to you what you gave to us. That's how it works. We come to God with empty hands, he fills them, we give them back. And so she's saying, take my life, take it all. But we recognize first it all came from him. We come before him with empty hands. And so this idea of presentation is very, very interesting, very important. Presentation runs throughout the Bible. We read about it in the Old Testament. The sacrifices were presented to the Lord. The Levites, the servants in the tabernacle and the temple were presented to the Lord. You remember in the Old Testament, the firstborn son in the family was presented to the Lord. Of course, we've just been remembering in Luke chapter 2, you remember when the Lord Jesus was born, he was brought to the temple by Joseph and Mary to be presented to the Lord. And the idea of presentation is simply this, that you are placing yourself at the disposal of another. That you are presenting yourself, you're it's, it's a very interesting word. You remember the Lord Jesus when he rose from the dead? In Acts chapter 1 we're told that he presented himself alive. He, he stood in a very public, deliberate way before his own and showed himself alive. And Paul is saying, I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you to come before God and to present yourself, to place yourself, as it were, at his Disposal. That's what it really means. But did you notice it's present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, of course, we know that sometimes in the Bible, when we read about the body, it means the whole person. Of course it does. That's what it means. God is looking for a full surrender and sacrifice of every single one of us. And it's the whole person. But Paul is emphasizing the body here for a very specific reason. And that is, the body, our, our natural bodies are the vehicles through which we express our character. They express who we really are. 
And, and Paul is saying, if you want to live as a Christian who gives expression to what you are in Christ, then you must present your body. And this is so practical, it involves my hands, it involves my ears, it involves my eyes, it involves my lips, my tongue, my feet. It involves the whole body. I interact with this world through the body. If I didn't have a body, I couldn't interact with the world. Through my senses and so on. God is saying, Paul is saying here, that God wants the believer to come before him and to present his body, her body, as a living sacrifice so that this internal character of Christ might be expressed through my hands, through my feet, uh, through my tongue, through the members of my body. Present your body. You remember in the Old Testament, the priests, when they were consecrated, when they were consecrated, the priests, they had to be, uh, the, the sacrifice was brought and the blood was bought, brought and it was placed on the, the tip of the right ear. Remember that, the tip of the right ear. And, and then the thumb of the right hand and then the great toe of the right foot. And what, what God was saying was this, that God claims the whole body from top to bottom. And he, he claims my ear, he wants me to hear him. And he claims my hand, he wants me to act for him. He claims my feet, he wants me to walk and to stand for him. So it is, Paul says, I'm beseeching you, I'm begging you to present your body a living sacrifice. Now, not only is it the presentation of the body, but it is a deliberate and definite presentation. And here we get to the aorist tense. We all know about the aorist tense. It's one of these tenses that uh, preachers talk about an awful lot. Whether we really understand it, I'm not quite sure. I looked up, it was Mr. Kelly uh, who gave uh, a wonderful explanation. He said, it's a completed act summed up in its conclusion. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm any wiser. A completed act summed up in its conclusion. I think what he means, <laughs> I might be wrong, but uh, I think what he means is this, that when you read about something and it's in this Greek aorist tense, we don't have the same kind of tense in, in, in the English language. It's not just something that happened in the past. Sometimes it's in the past. But the, the point of it is, it's an act complete in itself. It's something that's definite. It happens at a certain place, at a certain time, in a certain way. Brothers and sisters, what Paul is appealing for here is that this presentation should be as definite and as concrete and as complete in itself as that. I just want to ask everyone here today, and I realise I'm, I'm speaking to believers, some that have been on the, on the road a lot longer than I have, and this ministry has been well known and has been well enjoyed over many years, but I wonder, has there been a moment... Has there been a moment, we, 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 we like to challenge the unconverted and say, has there been a moment when you trusted Christ? Has there been a moment when you believed in the Lord Jesus? Has there been a moment when you were born again? Let me ask you, has there been a moment when you presented your body a living sacrifice? It's a definite thing. Now you might ask, well is it once for all? Is it something that happens just once for all? And then that's it over. Well, I'm not so sure about that. You can catch me at the interval. But I think... The emphasis is not simply that this was the first time it ever happened. I, 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 not to talk about any personal experience, but I remember the first time I heard somebody preach on this. I remember, 
There's the first time it happens. There's the first time a believer gets into the presence of God and says, Lord, I don't really understand this, but I'm presenting myself. I'm presenting my body. I'm handing myself over. I'm consecrating myself. But I don't think it's the thing that only happens once in a lifetime. Certainly not with me anyway. I think it's something that can happen again and again at different points in our lives that we renew this consecration, this dedication, this presentation to God. And I I may be talking to young believers here and uh, maybe this is new to you, I don't know. Maybe Maybe you've never been challenged in this way before. But I want to challenge every one of us that it's not your Christian life should consist of experiences with God. Not, not, just, not just book knowledge. We're not despising commentaries and learning and studying. But your Christian life needs an ongoing experience with God. And I want to challenge every young person here this afternoon. That if you've never done this, this is something you need to do. And we're going, to, we're going to think about the implications. We're going to think about what it means. But we cannot get around the fact that Paul is beseeching them to take definite action. And to do something concrete. And maybe there are older believers and you've done this. And you look back and say, well I remember I did it in 1964, 1965. I did it some time in the past. I can remember that meeting where I heard about it. I can remember reading about it in my own study. I remember getting on my knees before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, maybe it's time to just renew that. What a a new year 2023 would be. What a new year this could be if there was in Aberdeen, the city of Aberdeen, a band of people who were newly consecrated to God. Present your bodies. And he goes on to say, a living sacrifice. I suppose very few of us in this audience will ever be asked to die for Christ. It may happen. But I, I would imagine very few of us would be asked to die for Christ. But I'll tell you this, every single one of us is asked to live for Christ. And and it's a great contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices. You know, they were all dead before they were placed on the altar. The sacrifices were all killed at the door or at the altar. They were all killed before they reached the before they reached the altar. Before they were put on the altar, they were dead. They were dead sacrifices. There's only one living sacrifice in the Old Testament, and you know who it is. It was Isaac. Isaac was the only living victim on the altar. All the other offerings were dead sacrifices. Paul says, God wants your life. Joni Erickson, you might remember the story of Joni Erickson. She was the teenager who was paralyzed from the neck down after a swimming accident. And she suffered as she lay there in her hospital bed. She suffered great periods of depression and despair. And she tried on several occasions to take her own life. She tried to commit suicide and she physically couldn't do it. That was the only reason it never happened. She tried her hardest to take her... She came to the conclusion it would be easier for her to die than it would be to live. And then she reached the stage where through her tears she prayed, Lord, if I can't die, show me how to live. Show me how to live. Brothers and sisters... Lives like that are living sacrifices. And and Paul is is, is beseeching, he's pleading with these believers to to come before God, to make this definite presentation of themselves, to, to offer themselves, to put themselves entirely at God's disposal. 
as a living sacrifice to live out the rest of your days for the glory of God and he says holy, acceptable unto God Uh, Christianity is the only religion that has the proper view of the human body you know, some, some, some religions think that the body is inherently sinful and what you've got to do is try and escape it. And you've got to meditate yourself out of your body. Uh, Christianity is the only religion that has a proper view of the human body. And the fact is this, that because you're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, because you're saved, your body, although it has been the vehicle for the, for the use of sin in the past, it's now acceptable to God. It's holy. It's acceptable to God. It's an acceptable sacrifice. And Paul says, this is your reasonable service. It's your rational service. It's your logical. If you, if you think about it, it's the only response you can really make. It's the only, it's the proper thing to do, Paul is saying. And he uses the word here about it being a religious service. In other words, he's saying that this is a spiritual response. <laughs> It's a logical, it's a rational, it's a spiritual, it's a religious, it's a worshipping response of a redeemed heart to present your body a living sacrifice. I just want to leave that challenge. It's the act of consecration. It's the act. Now, of course, I would rather see somebody living the consecrated life than talking about an act that happened 20 years ago. Uh, you know, I'd rather see somebody who lived as a Christian than always just talking about what happened 50 years ago. Um, and so Paul goes on to show that this, this act of consecration, of, of presenting your body a living sacrifice, it has, it has great practical implications. We're going to think about that in the remaining time. Let's think of these four great practical outcomes. First of all, the transformation through the renewing of the mind. And we find that in verse 2. And, Paul says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now you can see Paul has a contrast in mind. There are two opposing forces at work. He says, don't be conformed uh, to the world. And, And it's been put like this, don't let the world press you into its mold. Don't, don't shape your life don't allow your life to be shaped by the standards and the fashions and the fads and the ideologies of the world around us and brothers and sisters we live in a day when this is more apparent than ever young people today particularly are, exp- are exposed to <laughs> tremendous external pressure from the world in which we live to, to adopt their outlook, their values to, 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 to be happy with what they're happy with, to rejoice in what they rejoice in, to, to have the same ambitions as they have and there's something very tragic when you see Christians uh, and, and they, they've we're not judgmental but, but, but you can see that the, the world has just pressed them into a mold that, that, that's trying to make them indistinguishable from the unconverted <coughs> brothers and sisters if we were really living the Christian life we should stand out like sore thumbs we really should I'm not talking about strange dress and, and how you look and so on but our character our values our talk our ambitions the things that make us joyful the things that make us sad they should be diametrically opposed to people around us 
And Paul says, don't allow the world to, to push you and press you into its mold so that you just become another factory line production worldling. He says, no, I want you to be transformed. And of course you know that this word is really metamorphosis. It's the idea of being transformed from within. The pressure from the world comes from outside. Paul says, you have a greater power, a transformative power that comes from within. I want you to be transformed. And it's the same word. You remember the Lord Jesus when he went up into the mountain and he was transfigured. It's the same word. And you remember what happened? It was the radiance. It wasn't that a great light was shining on Christ and his garments were glowing. His garments were glowing because the light was shining from within. It was a transfiguration from inside out. And Paul is saying, don't allow the world to push you into its mold, but rather be transformed, be transfigured from within. How does it work? By the renewing of your mind. Now when Paul talks about the mind, of course, he's not thinking about our brains so much. He's thinking about our mindset, our attitude, the way we look at things, the way we think about things, our attitudes to things. And he says, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. You have conferences like this. You have you fellowship with other believers. You have you've lots of, of great spiritual blessings that enable your mind, your outlook, the way you look at things, to be renewed. And as that attitude is being renewed, it will have a transforming effect on your life. Brothers and sisters, how much do we know about this? And you know, it comes down to, I always remember uh, uh, Brother Jack Hunter saying that the, the essential things of Christianity, very often, practical Christianity, come down to two things, reading and praying. <laughs> I remember saying that. You know, there's a lot of things that seem quite complicated, but, but when you boil it all down, I'll tell you this, young people, if you haven't been reading and praying today, there's something quite wrong with your spirit, your life. And if our lives are not spent giving heed to the Word of God, saturated in the Word of God, enjoying the things of God, if you'd rather be, uh, maybe you'd say, I'd rather be with my friends doing something else today, rather than being with the Lord's people, hearing the Word of God. Dear friends, these are all great things, great blessings that God has given us for the renewing of our minds. We sit under the ministry of God's Word. We might feel that it's, we might feel it's, it's, it's kind of cutting edge. We might feel it, it disturbs us, but it's, it's renewing our minds. And as that renewal of the mind takes place, we discover perhaps all, all unknown and unnoticed by ourselves, there's a transformation occurring. And Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be Transformed, And the object of that is that you will be able to approve. You will be able to test and to validate and to experience that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. That's amazing. All that is for this purpose, that your will and your attitude and your longings will be brought into line with the will of God. Somebody has said, you know, prayer, true prayer, is not about changing God's mind, it's about changing my mind. It's not about changing God's will, it's about bringing my will into line with God's will. And so Paul says, this is the first great outcome. Transformation. 
You know, you meet believers and they're enjoying spiritual things. They're enjoying the Word of God. They're enjoy- that's what they talk about. That's what they love. They love to be with the Christians. They, they love to be enjoying spiritual things together. Uh, that's a Christian. And they may not even notice it. But they're being transformed. The renewing of the mind. Let's go in for that in 2023. Young people, get yourself some kind of reading plan for the scriptures. <laughs> don't, 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 it's only the second, I know, but get started early. Get yourself some discipline. I remember a New Year conference in Bucky many years ago, and uh, Brother Dan Gillis was preaching, and he spoke about a wasted life being an indiscipline, an indisciplined life being a wasted life, an indisciplined life. You see, Brothers and sisters, if we're going to make progress in spiritual things, if we're going to glorify God in our lives for the rest of our time that's left, and really, that's all that matters. That's really all that matters. For the rest of our time, if we're going to glorify God and be pleasing to Him, we will have to take definite action. We're never just going to drift into this. So get yourself some kind of Bible reading plan and stick at it, and you'll find the renewing of your mind has begun. And so Paul says, not only the renewing of your mind, but in verse uh, number uh, 3, he says, I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. (laughs) You know, you might, uh, well, I don't think anyone is surprised at this, but we tend to have a pretty high opinion of ourselves. We would never say that, of course. We'd never, not from the platform, anyway. Uh, we'd never say that. But we tend to think that when we make a judgment, it's the right judgment. When we make a call, it's the right call. Uh, and our way of looking at things, well, if only other people could be as sensible as we are. Uh, we'd never as- express that, of course. But uh, that's the reality. And Paul says, listen, through the grace... Isn't this lovely? Paul is such a gracious man. He says, through the grace that is given to me... I want to say to you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. Now just take that word soberly for a minute. Soberly means sanely. Uh, Somebody has said that to be conceited about your abilities or about any gift that God has given to you, or about anything about yourself, whether it's your appearance or your knowledge. Conceit and pride is a species of insanity. If you see somebody who's conceited and proud, that person really, according to the Bible, is insane. They really are insane. They need help. Paul says, I want you to have a sane estimation of your capabilities and capacity according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. The idea is there that God has marked out something for you. This idea, is we're going to come up against this uh, in this whole passage in the next couple of days, this idea of the measure of faith and, 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 and a proportion of faith and so on. We're going to come up against this kind of idea that God has, has kind of allotted something to you. He's, the idea of it's measuring it out. It's like measuring something out in the ground. God has measured out something for you. And, and what you have, you've got to have your abilities, your gifts, whether they're natural, whether they're spiritual, whatever God has given to you, that is what God has allotted to you. And you've got to think soberly, not to think of yourself too highly. You are not the greatest gift to your assembly. <laughs> you're really not. You're not the greatest gift to the body of Christ. You really are not. We've got to think soberly, and yet not think too lowly. 
I think it was Jane Darby who said that true humility is not thinking bad thoughts about yourself. It's not thinking about yourself at all. And uh, it, Paul is not suggesting here that we should go around saying, oh, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, and I can't do anything. And, and so you end up de- depressed and discouraged. Paul's not saying that at all. He's saying, have a sober self-assessment. Brothers and sisters, as we present our bodies a living sacrifice, as we stand before God and say, Lord, this 2023 that lies ahead of us, I'm, I'm placing myself at your disposal. I'm putting myself into your hands. I'm, I, I'm going to look at the, the transformation Transformation of the mind. I'm going to try and, 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 and progress this renewal of the mind, this transformative power, and I'm going to have a proper, sober assessment of where I am, of what my capabilities are, and what God has given me to do, and the gifts that He has given. But then, thirdly, verses six, uh, sorry, verses four and five. He speaks about, I think this is the only time in the letter to the Romans he mentions the body. He speaks about being many members in one body. All members of not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ. Now, I don't think Paul is talking about the body of Christ, which includes every believer. Um, I think what he's, he's, he's doing is this. He's using the figure of a body and applying it to the local Christians in Rome. And he's saying, just as in your human body, you have different members, but they're all united, they all work together, there's harmony. He's saying, that is how you should operate. This is how a consecrated person operates. They don't operate in a silo. They don't operate independently of other Christians. They're not lone rangers when it comes to divine things. They want to work in harmony with other people. And Paul is moving in this passage we've been reading. Paul is moving from the individual to the corporate. He is moving from dealing with individual believers, presenting themselves to God, and he's slowly going down this passage, we'll see of it, I'm sure, in the next section too, but he's he's coming down to the fact that uh, it's not enough just to say, well, I'm going to lock myself in my room and be a holy person. Paul expects that somebody who's consecrated is going to be interested in harmonious function with other believers. Now, can I just say something? There are maybe believers here today and you're not associated with any local church. You're not uh, in fellowship with any local assembly. And there are lots of believers like that. And if you talk to them, they've all got lots of reasons why. Dear brother, dear sister, can I just say tenderly, these reasons are no good. They're no good. God never intended you to be on your own. God never intended you just to be attending a church. God intended every believer in every locality to be gathered together and so united to other believers who are different. There's a great variety in the local church. But to be working together harmoniously. And a believer who has surrendered himself to God. You see, I find that Sometimes when there are problems in the local church, and I feel like leaving, and uh, I have felt like leaving, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes when there are problems in the local church, it's because of, and I have to look into my own heart, maybe a bit of pride. It's because I don't think people are really taking enough knowledge of, uh, notice of me. You know, it's because somebody, somebody has stamped on my toes and it hurts. 
Somebody's offended me. And I'm not happy. I'll tell you this. A believer who has surrendered himself to God is not interested in being offended. Is not interested in keeping grudges. A believer who has presented himself or herself to God and said, Lord, do with me what you want. I always remember reading about Amy Carmichael. And she said, are you prepared to be a mat at the door for people to wipe their feet on? Well, you'll find that somebody who's living the consecrated life, they can sound very good on the platform, they can sound very impressive in the living room with the open Bible, but I'll tell you this, if people are very easily offended, I'm going to have it my way and I'm going to leave because somebody said this or somebody's done that, I'll tell you this, they're not living a consecrated life. Because the consecrated, surrendered believer is not interested. It's not interesting. They want to harmoniously work with other believers. It's difficult sometimes. But I'll tell you this, dear brother, dear sister, if you're not in assembly fellowship, let me encourage you to join yourselves to a local company of believers. Because you'll never find, you'll never work out your true potential as a believer on your own. Never. And so Paul says, here's a mark of somebody who is surrendered to God. They're harmoniously working in a local fellowship now my last section just a minute or two on this 6 to 8 and uh, here not only is it a transformed mind and sober self assessment and harmonious function but it's dedicated service he says having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us let's just stop there for a minute Uh, we sometimes say you know that's a very gifted person Well, I'm looking at a sea of faces, and each one of you is a very gifted person. Every single one of you, from the youngest to the oldest, male and female. We believe that. Scripture teaches that. That according to the grace that is given to us, it's all of grace. It is absurd to try and take credit for your gift. It's crazy. Because gifts are given on the principle, not of merit, but of grace. And so if God has given you a gift, and God has given you a gift, it's because of the grace of God, not because of your ability, or because of your brains. It's because God in His grace has bestowed a gift upon you. And I'm looking down at a sea of faces of people who are gifted, who are gifted, are gifted. Uh, I remember somebody saying, there's not much gift in our assembly. (laughs) I thought, well... Are they not believers? (laughs) Are they not saved? If they're saved, they're gifted, all right. I knew what the brother meant, but there's not much gift in our assembly. Well, I'll tell you this, there's a tremendous amount of gift in this assembly. There's a tremendous amount of gift in this company of believers here. Now listen to what Paul says about it. And I suggest there there are seven gifts he points out here. This is not an exhaustive list at all, but there are seven gifts, and I just want to say this before I sit down, there are three different categories. The first category, there's only one gift in this category. It's the first one, prophecy. Because only of that gift does he say, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. But then there's a a, a category with three gifts in. Ministry, teaching, exhorting. And you'll notice, or ministry, let us wait, it says in the authorised version, let us wait in italics, it's not there. But the idea is, or ministry in our ministering. Or he that teacheth in teaching. Or he that exhorteth in exhortation. He that giveth, here's the third category, 
Let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. I just want to point out that there are at least there are a number of lessons we can learn from this, but just to say there are three important things we learn from this list and what Paul says about it. First of all, he talks about prophecy. Now I would imagine that he's talking about the New Testament uh, gift of prophecy, which is no longer available today. People talk about having a prophetic word. Uh, and uh, I think what they mean is that a teacher comes along with the word of God and he brings the word that is just needed for that very moment. Now that's, that's good. But that's not prophecy in the New Testament sense. Prophecy, Paul is talking about prophecy before we had the completed canon of scripture, the entire Bible. God revealed directly his mind and his will through the prophets. And Paul says, now if you have the gift of prophecy, don't go beyond the faith. And I think that's revealed. What is revealed has already been revealed. You might disagree with me there. But I think he's saying, in this matter of prophecy, if you're claiming to have a word from God, make sure it corresponds with what has already been revealed. Don't go beyond. It's got to be according to the proportion of the faith. I think that's the idea there. And let me just say this, uh, just to apply this principle. Uh, I think that uh, people who teach the word of God like we're trying to do today we ought to be careful too not to go beyond both our experience but also to make sure that in our desire to edify and help the saints we don't go beyond the word of God we don't go beyond the revealed faith keep everything biblical and bible based and then he, he's talking about uh, Ministry. Let's wait on our ministering. Teaching on teaching. Exhorting on exhortation. What does he mean by that? I think he simply means this. That if you have these gifts, be focused on these gifts. If you are a minister, uh, the, the idea is a deacon. That involves teaching. This is, this is deacon work here, I think, as well. There's deacon work in the assembly that involves practical things, but there's deacon work in the assembly that involves teaching. I believe that. Uh, if you're a deacon, focus on your work. If you are a teacher of the word of God, focus on your teaching. If you are primarily an exhorter, one who's able to encourage and stimulate the saints, focus on that. Now I understand that if you're in a very small assembly, you, you'll, you'll find you have to do lots of things. Yeah, you, you've got to almost turn your hand to anything. And God gives help in all these things. I'm absolutely sure of that. But I would say this in larger assemblies. Uh, we need to free up our brethren who are teachers and who are preachers. I'm not talking about full-time service here. I'm talking about in your local assembly. Brethren who are gifted in this way need to be given the time to focus on their gift. And to, and to concentrate on their gift. And let me just make this a bit wider. Whatever gift God has given you. You're going to have to put something into it. You're going to have to focus on it. You're going to have to be in it. This is the idea here. It's not just going to suddenly miraculously happen to you. You've been given a gift, but you've got to develop it. You've got to feed it. You've got to work at it. That's what Paul has in mind here. And then finally, he's gone from very specific to, to quite general now. And he says, he that gives. That's a gift. It's a gift to be able to give, isn't it? Uh, well, if God has given you a lot of things to give, maybe he's given you the gift of giving. 
Uh, and if God lays it on your heart to give, maybe he's given you the gift of giving. Uh, and if God exercises you to give and it seems to meet a, a need that you knew nothing about, maybe God has given you the gift of giving. And, and I, would, I would widen this out not just, to, not just to material things, because somebody can have the gift of giving that has no money to spare, but they can give their time. And they can give their, they can give their talents. They, they're, just, they're just a generous person. And that's what this really means. Uh, it says here, He that giveth, let him do it in simplicity or in liberality. Give. If you're a giver, just keep giving. Give. Focus on that. And then, He that ruleth. He that, he that goes before, that's the idea. And you can think of the overseer in the local assembly, or you can think of somebody who's just in a leadership role, who, who leads the people of God, who gives a lead to the saints. Deal with diligence. Focus on that. And then, if you show mercy, if you are one of those, there are believers who are gifted in this way. They, they're just able to show mercy, to be kind, to, to draw near. Well, do it with cheerfulness. I always remember a bro dear brother Robert, Robert Walker of Aberdeen. Robert Walker was a great hospital visitor, as most of us will know. And he used to say that uh, when you go... Uh, he spoke to us young men once about, about visiting people in hospital. And he had some rules. Five minutes maximum, he said. Um, go in with a smile and leave with a smile. Uh, and he said, always read and pray with them. Always, always leave them happier. And when you went in, don't just focus on their illness. This was, this was his kind of idea, and I think he fulfilled that himself. He, he was a very, a very kind and gracious man. But the idea is, and this, this idea of cheerfulness, is the word from which we get the word hilarity. Hilarious. And so Paul is saying here, when you show mercy, when you're a blessing to people, do it with a smile, do it with cheerfulness, do it with the conscious knowledge that God has given you this ability. And there are saints like that, and they just draw alongside you, and they'll maybe never be on a platform preaching, but they can just cheer you and give you a word. Let's encourage that. This is just a sample of gifts. Now, a person who has presented themselves... A living sacrifice to God. They have a transformed mind. A renewed mind. They are sober in their assessment of their own abilities. They're marked by humility and reality. They are harmoniously trying to function in the local church as members of a body. And they are absolutely dedicated to any gift that God has given to them. May that be us, brothers and sisters. May, may we take these things to heart and what our brother is going to expound to us now from the remainder of the chapter. May these practical things be seen in us. I'll tell you this, it will turn our assemblies upside down. It will turn Aberdeen upside down. It will turn Ock upside down. If we live in this way, let us seek to be those who come before God and present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. Mm -hmm.